Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few minutes, a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to focus and put aside all the cares and worries and anxieties of the day and tomorrow, and we can just uh, focus on the word and uh, buckle our seat belts because it's going to be a fast ride for two or three weeks here to get through a lot of good material. So let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll pray. Let's pray. Father, it's good that we can come together to study your word, to be refreshed, encouraged, strengthened, edified by what we study, that as we come into your word, no matter what topic we're studying, what doctrine, what study, what book, Old Testament or New Testament, that you use your word to strengthen us, to teach us, to build our thinking so that our focus is on divine viewpoint and not human viewpoint, and so that as we face the issues of life, we can do so from this vantage point of absolute truth. Father, as we study this evening, pray that we can focus and concentrate. We can put aside all the cares that uh, can easily slip in and distract us, and that we can focus on your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Every now and then I think it's important to remind everybody why we study prophecy. Because a lot of folks get the idea, or at least I've heard the objection at times past, that that prophecy is, well, that's okay, but that's not going to happen for 50 years or 100 years or 1,000 years, and we're not going to be here, so let's do something that's a little more more relevant. After all, there's so much, uh, so much debate about this and that and the other thing that, about prophecy that let's deal with some things that are more uh, relevant and more... Uh, applicable to our own immediate lives. And that may sound like a good rationale that some people come up with every now and then, but the reality is that fully a fifth of Scripture is still unfulfilled prophecy. And that rationale leads to basically saying that, well, there's about 20% of the Bible that really doesn't relate to me at all, and then usually the same people use another argument about the Old Testament, so they they want to take out a razor blade and cut out a lot of the Bible and say it's not important for us to study. And yet it's the whole counsel of God. It is all Scripture that God breathed that is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for instruction in righteousness, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, 
that the man of God, that is a term for every believer, is strengthened and encouraged and edified. That's the idea of that verb there is equipped for every good work. And when Paul wrote that to Timothy in those previous verses in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, Paul has talked about how when he was a young boy, it was his mother and his grandmother that taught him the scriptures. Now, when he was a young boy, there wasn't a New Testament. And so Paul's conclusion is that what his mother and grandmother taught him in the scripture was the Old Testament. So when Paul wrote all scripture, what Paul had in mind was not the New Testament. What Paul had in mind at that time, because only about a half or maybe two-thirds of the New Testament had been written, what Paul had in mind primarily was the Old Testament Scripture. And Paul is saying that it is the Old Testament Scripture there that is able to, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And the idea there uh, is that we are able to uh, learn how to think biblically. And we learn how to think biblically when we have a when we have an understanding of what life's all about and where things are headed, not just in terms of our own individual life, but when we know where life in general is headed, what our purpose is, how we fit within the total panorama of history and the scope of history and the role that each individual believer's life plays. And we under, when we understand the future and where God is taking us and what God's plan is, then that informs us as to how to think today. Another area that comes out that I want you to keep in mind when we get into the study that we're going to be in in both Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 in the coming weeks is that Daniel was written to people who were going through an extremely chaotic time in their life. They were Jews, Jewish believers, Old Testament believers, who had been taken out of the land of Israel. They had been uh, evicted by God from the land that he had promised, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promised land, and he had brought them through a tremendous trial of military defeat that was preceded by economic collapse and many other difficulties. Now, we live in a time where we can relate more and more to what they were going through because of the financial problems in this nation, and it's not just our nation, it's in the world, the uncertainties with which we look forward uh, to our future life. As we get older, we think more and more about how we're going to take care of things in our 60s or 70s or 80s. Some of you may be thinking about your 90s. Some of us aren't there yet. But when we look at the uncertainties and the instabilities that surround all of us, the only certainty in life is comes from the word and trusting in the Lord. And even when we're trusting in the Lord, he's going to take us through uncertain and unstable times. We're going to be back in uh, Elijah on Sunday morning. And Elijah is this mature prophet of God who announces the discipline from God with the famine. And he's got to go through it just like everybody else. And so as we go through the hard times, we have to understand that there's a reason, a purpose, and there is a plan. It's not just chaotic happenstance. 
We just don't happen to live in times where these kinds of things are taking place, and so we can relax. And if we're applying the Word of God in our thinking and in the way in which we handle our finances, then we can go through as a real testament source of stability for other people. It is to look at a time of, of instability as a time when we can have a tremendous ministry to people, uh, be a tremendous source of comfort to other people. This is a great opportunity to to witness, a great opportunity to be a testimony. And so we, we can think of that and think of, and that's one thing I, I believe is so helpful in a study in a study of Daniel and in a study of prophecy because God does, did not reveal prophecy just to tell us about the future. Prophecy is revealed to believers going through chaotic times to show that God is in control of history. He is the sovereign of history. Nothing happens just randomly in chaos. And the purpose behind giving prophecy is really to show how God is working to ultimately bring about uh, what he has promised. So, having said that by way of introduction, we're in our study on Revelation. I'm just going to briefly review where we were last time as we started our study in Revelation 13. And in Revelation chapter 13, in the uh, first part of the chapter, we deal with the Antichrist, who is here called the, the uh, first beast, and then in, and that's the first ten verses, and then starting in verse 11, we'll go to the second beast. But we're going to be talking about the Antichrist for a while. Now, some of you may think, why in the world do we want to spend so much time on the Antichrist? Boy, there is some great stuff to learn about human viewpoint thinking and the way people respond to charismatic human viewpoint, demonic leadership. And it's not just political. It it happens in corporations and in businesses and all. And the more pagan a nation becomes, the more this kind of leadership rises to the surface. And it's operating on just a complete fantasy of how life works. And if you watch the news... If you're still watching the news, may I say, I've had so many people say they just quit watching the news. If you're still watching the news, then you see evidence of this every day. It's like, you know, are people just living in a fantasy world? We have captains of industry and banks, presidents and congressmen and presidents and world leaders just operating on a totally made-up view of, of life and history and it just gets reinforced for them uh, every day as they and, and we see the same dynamic that occurs that did occur in the Old Testament with Pharaoh as Pharaoh rejected God and sold himself and his thinking completely to the paganism of the uh, of the Egyptian uh, religion he had already rejected God and he had already hardened his heart But as God continued in grace to give him opportunity after opportunity, in fact, ten different opportunities to change his thinking, each grace opportunity simply hardened him further in his rejection of God. Now, we're going to see that a lot in the coming years. We're going to see the people who have rejected truth become more and more mired 
in their hostility to truth, and as they network on the Internet and as they network in other ways on their little, you know, sending out their little tweets on Twitter or MySpace or all these other little social networking things that capture the young, they realize there's a whole lot more of them than there are of us. And so we will become demonized more and more by the culture. It's those people that just have such a such a view of truth, that there's just one truth. They're just the most horrible people in the world. This has gone, this kind of thinking's not new, but it has been, it's new in this nation. It's never dominated, and it's going to dominate more and more. And this is the same kind of thing that we're going to see in the, in the tribulation period, dominating the tribulation, dominating, uh, the thinking of the leaders, and it is, uh, encapsulating this thinking of this one person, the Antichrist. So there's an interesting psychological study, you may say, of evil and evil leadership in the uh, study of the Antichrist. Plus, this covers a number of really important chapters like Revelation 13, Daniel 7 and 8, and a little bit in Daniel 11, as well as 2 Thessalonians 2. Plus, you need to be informed believers and not, as uh, Paul would say in some of his letters, I don't want you to be ignorant brethren. I don't know whether he was saying ignorant brethren or ignorant brethren. I think both. We don't want you to be ignorant brethren. And... There are debates going on today that are really interesting, and and it's not bad. I may not agree with some people, but at least they're thinking about prophecy and trying to understand the Bible from a literal viewpoint, and that's, that's always good because it always forces people to think more about what they've heard and studied in the past. And as we live in a world today where radical Islamofascism or just standard run-of-the-mill Muslim theology is the major enemy that Western civilization faces, and trust me, it is. It's a whole lot worse than the news media even wants to uh, make make clear. I think Fox News has done some good work in the last couple of years with a couple of special productions, but I don't think they're they're even scratching the surface of the potential evil and destructive power that uh, the Muslim world has and the impact that can have on um, on Western civilization. I mean, we can't, we don't realize it. Some of you do, I know, but most people in this country don't realize that we came within uh, days, if not minutes, of wa- watching Western civilization totally disintegrate on September 11th, 2001. Because the network, the financial network that got wiped out when the World Trade Center went down, the impact that had across the world in the insurance industry, as well as impact on on many other things that that were connected in some degree to the businesses that were in the World Trade Center. We just don't realize that it's just by the grace of God that we are still stable. And by the grace of God and some good leaders that we had in this country at the time. And I'm not sure that we're going to have that if there's another crisis of that dimension, but we do have uh, God who is working out his plan for prophecy, so we don't have to worry by looking at the bad guys so much. We can relax and trust, 
uh, tr- trust in the Lord. But in the midst of this, you have people like Walid Shubat, who spoke here uh, a couple of years ago at the uh, at the uh, pastors' conference, and others who are Muslim background believers who are speaking and writing a lot, and they come out of an Eastern environment, They're raised in Syria or Lebanon or in uh, Israel, and they. When they read a lot of things in prophecy, what they read when they read these these countries like Turkey and Gog and Magog and Syria and Persia and Libya and Egypt and these these countries that are mentioned in prophecy, what they they hear because that's that that's as familiar to them as Arkansas, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Colorado. And so what they hear when they read those terms is they're looking at all those countries and they're saying these are all Muslim countries. And so one line of thinking that has become more dominant in the last 10 or 20 years is this idea that the Antichrist comes out of what used to be the Eastern Roman Empire, and he's a Muslim, and that the future empire of the Antichrist is going to come out of uh, this strengthening Muslim empire. And so there's a lot of teaching on Some people have gotten, I think, pretty confused by that. I don't think that's right, but I think I, it's it's at a point now where it has to be addressed. Uh, I spent some time in the last month talking with uh, Tommy Ice about this as the director of pre-trib rapture study group, and he's uh, recognizing that he's got to knuckle down, do some work on this, and get into some of these passages, and other people do. I've had several people around here ask me uh, questions about that. Is is that the, the Antichrist going to be a Muslim? What do you think about this view that's out there? Uh, Zane Hodges, who was a professor at Dallas Seminary, uh, held that view. Uh, there are some others. They emphasize the fact that there are some passages in the Old Testament that talk about the Antichrist as the Assyrian, or it appears that it's talking about the Antichrist as the Assyrian. And there's some. you, you can go home tonight when you can't sleep, uh, Google the Assyrian Antichrist, and you'll run into all kinds of interesting stuff out on the Internet uh, related to that. And so that has to be answered, and I have to do the study to answer some of that, and I've never addressed this. There's, some of this stuff was not even on anybody's thought list when I went through seminary, so it's it's all sort of like uh, going through new ground, and it involves dealing with a lot of di- uh, several different passages that I haven't dealt with before. So we're going to go th- take some time and go back through Daniel 7 and 8. Last time I taught that was 10 years ago, and I understand things better now than I did then, and that's important. I'm not going to go through a lot of in-depth stuff as I did when I taught the first time in Daniel. I pretty much hold the same positions, but I think I understand it better now. And then we have Second um, Thessalonians 2. That's a fascinating pro- prophecy passage to, to uh, go through because of, and it has a lot of application for today. When Paul wrote Second Thessalonians 2 and much of First Thessalonians, and it's all, all prophetic, he's writing that so that the Thessalonian believers in the first century who, golly, they're at least 2,000 years away from uh, applying any of that directly. But they needed to know it because the, the, the consequences, the uh, indirect result of having that kind of knowledge in your soul is important for strengthening your soul. It's part of the, the, the web of knowledge out of which wisdom comes in the Bible. Uh, too often people today are so simplistic, they think we have to learn 
when we learn something to apply, we have to get ten principles on how to uh, have your best life now or something equally superficial. And they don't realize that all of that flows out of an entire mindset. And that mindset has to be grounded in an absolute conviction of the truth of God's word. And that gets strengthened every time we study almost any doctrine, but especially prophecy, because we see that that this covers so much of the scripture. And at one point, almost 30% of, of, of the Bible was unfulfilled prophecy. And yet, and we still have a little more than half of that is still unfulfilled. And what was fulfilled was fulfilled precisely the first time Jesus came and other prophecies that we have in the Old Testament. So studying prophecy is very important. It's not just some sort of intellectual exercise that theologians and pastors argue about that gives them some mental stimulation, but it has a direct relationship to how we think about life, uh, life today. Okay, we get into Revelation 13, and it focuses on this <clears throat> first beast. And as I pointed out last time, there is a textual issue in the, um, in the first verse, and it should read, and I, not and he, or the dragon, as you'll see in the uh, New American Standard. The N-U there is a reference to the Nestle Alon text, that's the n and the U relates to the UBS text. That's the standard critical text. For those of you aware of those things, that is normally what most seminary students use rather than the majority text, which I think has a little better use, a little better uh, 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 manuscript evidence. But most of the time in Revelation, majority text agrees with the, uh, with the UBS text. Now, I is referring to John. He stands on the Sea of the Sand. He sees this beast coming up that has the ten horns and seven heads. And we studied that as a, this is a representation of the kingdom of man and its final form in the ten-nation confederacy of the Antichrist. And it goes back to Daniel chapter 1, which we'll look at, I mean, Daniel chapter 7, which we'll look at, uh, start looking at a little more depth tonight. And it also relates to Revelation chapter 17, where we have the picture of the end-time empire as a, as a harlot, as a uh, prostitute, because the people, the creation of God, mankind has prostituted themselves, selling themselves to Satan and his, and his empire, and they have been unfaithful to the God who created them. And so that's why the kingdom of man is pictured as a great harlot, great prostitute, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth are made drunk with the wine of her immorality. They are just totally uh, in love with the thinking of the cosmic system. And it's, it's amazing how we watch that all around us. Revelation 17.3, he carried me away into the spirit. Uh, in the spirit, into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The seven heads, ten horns imagery all comes out of Daniel uh, Daniel chapter 7. And the you know, waters mentioned in 1715 are the people's multitudes, nations, and tongues. So the beast comes out of the waters, comes out of the nations. It's a Gentile origin for the Antichrist. The Antichrist doesn't have 
a Jewish base. People sometimes think that, that the Antichrist is uh, Jewish. And the Antichrist is not Jewish. The Antichrist comes out of the waters, the Gentile nations. When we get to the false prophet, he comes out of the earth, literally the land, a term in reference to Israel, and the false prophet will be uh, will be Jewish. And so then we have the emphasis on this on the kingdom of man as a beast. And I've said this is a picture of a ravenous, destructive uh, beast that is hostile to humanity. And so we're getting into our study of the um, beastly kingdoms, the uh, beastly kingdoms of Daniel 7. And Daniel 7 and 8 are some of the most fascinating chapters to study in the Old Testament. Now, first thing we have to do whenever we get into any passage of Scripture is we have to study context. Always that's the first thing is what's the context of any passage that we're dealing with. And the context of Daniel 7 is in the context of a section of Daniel beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, and going to the end of Daniel 7, where Daniel is no longer writing in Hebrew, but he's writing in Aramaic. Now, that's important because there's only a few other verses. There's about a chapter and a half or two in uh, Ezra that's written in Aramaic, and then there's a couple of odd verses here or there uh, elsewhere that are written in Aramaic. Aramaic became is a is a cousin to Hebrew, and became the common language or the lingua franca in the ancient world from the time of about the seventh uh, century or so BC uh, on. And this language is the language of the Babylonians and the uh, uh, and the uh, uh, Persians later on, and so it is a Gentile language. And so it's it's important to note that the Bible now is no longer written in a Jewish language, but it's written in a Gentile language in these six chapters, Daniel 2 through 7, which focus on the rise of the Gentile kingdoms in history and their uh, dominion over Israel and over Jerusalem. And so Daniel shifts to this Aramaic language. Now, when we get into this, we see that we have a chiastic structure, and most of you ought to be familiar with that term now. I talked about it Sunday morning, but this is a standard literary device that writers use to bring out certain uh, certain points. And if you look at chapter 2 in Daniel, states that God is in control of the world empires. That's the chapter where Nebuchadnezzar has the dream and he sees the, the big statue with the head of gold, the chest of silver, and the abdomen of, of uh, bronze, and then the uh, legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay. And he sees this, this dream, and then there's this stone that's cut without hands that just demolishes this, this statue. And the point of that chapter is that God is in control of history. And it's a depiction, that statue's a depiction, of the flow of history. Then chapter 3, we deal with the results of loyalty to God and his authority. And this is a chapter that talks about the uh, three friends who take their stand for the word of God 
even though it will cost them, rather than bow down to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar builds after he's seen this big statue and finds out that he's the head of gold, uh, he builds a big statue and he's going to make everybody in the kingdom worship him. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down and worship that statue, even though the penalty is to be put into the fiery furnace. And so they are going to be loyal to God, despite whatever the pressures are from the world system around them, and God protects them uh, and preserves them. He doesn't always do that, as they say, even though uh, he, he doesn't slay us, we will still obey him. Uh, then for, in the fourth chapter, we see the results of pride and arrogance, uh, the results of rejecting God's authority in contrast to what those three men did in being obedient to God's authority and trusting him no matter what. The contrast is with Nebuchadnezzar, and we see all of his grandeur as the greatest political leader, the richest individual on the planet at that time, the most powerful king at that time, and God just strikes him down one day and he becomes like an animal and he spends seven years uh, living out in the pasture, eating grass and acting like a cow until one day God snaps his fingers and he comes out of it and he's back in his human form and restored to his former position. And he gives glory to God. So we see that the results of pride and the rejection of God's authority in chapter 4. Chapter 5 deals with the same issue. And this is going to focus on uh, the whole situation with um, uh, Belshazzar and the collapse of the, uh, of, the, of the Babylonian or Neo-Chaldean Empire and the handwriting on the wall and the defeat by the Persians. Then chapter 7 and 8 are no longer in chronological order. And uh, uh, chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 6 deals with the, uh, not in chronological order, chapter 6 deals with the plot against Daniel. Uh, excuse me, that is in chronological order. It's 7 that's out of chronological order. 6 is dealing with Daniel and the lion's den. Again, there's been a power-based shift. The Persians are now in control. Those who are uh, jealous of Daniel and his power and his position uh, plot against him and get the uh, king to uh, pass a law that, that anyone is caught praying to anyone other than uh, him, that they're going to be penalized by being put into a den of uh, hungry lions. And so Daniel is loyal, just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. See, this point mirrors the chapter 3, and we see the results of being loyal to God and his authority. And then in the seventh chapter that we look at uh, tonight, we see that God is in control of world empires. He oversees the flow of history. God's in charge. Now think about this from a Jewish aspect. You're an individual Jewish believer. You've lost everything. You've been taken out of the land that God promised you. And now you get this information. Well, this is, this, this just structure right here shows you that if you continue in your pride and arrogance, Israel, you continue to have a stiff-necked, rebellious attitude towards God, then God is going to continue to deal harshly with you and discipline you. But those who are loyal to God, and trust him are going to be blessed. 
And so you see that contrast at the very core, at the very point of the uh, the center of the uh, chiasm, you have the two chapters that focus on the results of pride and arrogance and God's discipline. That's exactly what the northern and southern kingdom are experiencing at this time. They rejected God. They got into idolatry. They got into paganism. They rejected God, forgot the law, and as a result, God had to discipline them and take them out of the land. And they had to go through extremely difficult times because of their arrogance. In contrast to those who were loyal to God, God protects them and watches over them. And there is a reminder that God is in control of history. So these are the chapters that are written in Aramaic, focusing on what God is doing among the Gentile nations now in contrast to what he did with Israel. So to understand Daniel chapter 7, we have to remember that it comes out of an understanding of the message in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, we have the great statue which represents the flow of Gentile empires, Babylon, uh, from 612 to 539. That 612 date was embedded in that particular picture. There are different dates I've seen. Some say 605 because that's when Nebuchadnezzar took over. 626 is when his father, Nabopolassar, uh, brought about a rebellion or rebelled against the uh, Syrian Empire, which was the empire that preceded the Neo-Caledonian Empire. And then others will pick a date somewhere in between based on his the administration or organization of uh, Nabopolassar. So that's why that date is used there. 539, 538 is a pretty set date. Uh, when uh, 539 is a set date. This is when the Persians uh, come in, in ch- Daniel chapter uh, 5, and defeat the uh, Babylonians, capture Babylon. Then you have the Medo-Persian Empire from 539 to 331, Greece from 331 to 168 B.C., and then Rome from 168 B.C. to uh, 476 A.D. That's the defeat of the western half of the Roman Empire, and then the future uh, ten kingdoms in the revived Roman Empire. That's the flow of history. So you just have to think about that because we're still in that section. We're between the first phase of the Roman Empire and the second phase of the Roman Empire, uh, a period that's that's, uh, sort of disorganized. But Satan is going to be working to bring about the restoration of that kingdom so that he can put his man in place. So there's no prophecy related to that period uh, in between the fall of the Roman Empire and and its revival in the future. So as we look at Daniel chapter 7, the animals that we see represented in the vision in Daniel 7 are animals that represent the same empires. You have Babylon represented by a winged lion. Uh, Medo-Persia is represented by a lopsided bear that has three ribs in his mouth. Why does he have three ribs in his mouth? Is he from Texas, like good barbecue? Or? Why three? Why not four or five? And then we have... Uh, a four-headed leopard that has four wings. These are 
not normal animals. And what is the significance of the four-headed, four-winged leopard? And then we have Rome represented by this creature that's indescribable. It's very interesting to see how different people uh, represent the, uh, the, the, the beast of the, the, the fourth beast that has the ten horns. And usually it's some sort of dinosaur that's chosen, and sometimes it's just a blend of the other animals. But see, it's those same animals or attributes of those same animals that show up in Revelation chapter 13, that this animal that shows up with the ten heads uh, or the seven heads, uh, seven, seven heads and the ten horns and the, and the crowns in Revelation 13, Revelation 17 is, has these same characteristics as the characteristics of the lion, the bear, the leopard, and then, the, of course, the ten horns from the last beast. So we have to understand this to understand where the future is headed. And what's fascinating about this is that there is a historical flow from the Babylonian Gentile Empire through to the future where characteristics from each empire, what they contribute to, quote, humanism, to man's view of man and man's ability to rule himself apart from God, uh, he develops different things technologically that contribute then to the next empire. And th- these things continue from empire to empire, and that's why we'll see in, in Daniel 7, at the end, there's a statement that these kings, kingdoms have not ever really ended. They're just different manifestations of the same empire. And when we understand that, as I've pointed out in the last several weeks, I think, is that this rep- we are, the United States of America is part of the kingdom of man. As patriotic as we are, as much as we love our country, and we should, and we, we do, and I'm not suggesting anything otherwise, but we have to look at history realistically, that as great as this nation is, as fabulous as its foundation was, as much as the founders of this country were oriented to the Bible and biblical principles and sought to infuse that into the legal system of this nation, ultimately this nation is going down like every other nation because every human nation is part of the kingdom of man, and we're not going to get away from it. And it's been the target of Satan since the beginning to destroy any nation that promotes freedom, promotes the word of God, and protects Israel. And so that is what we can expect. It's just that most of us don't want to be around during the collapse of the United States of America and we don't want to be there to witness it. So we can't let the rapture be some sort of secret hope that, that well, you know, the rapture is going to occur. Maybe we'll, we'll get out of here. I can't tell you how many people, like John Walbert, President of Dallas Seminary, didn't, didn't make the rapture, thought he would. He was convinced. I remember him saying so back in the 70s. How many people thought they would be in the rapture? You know, Hal's getting, Hal Lindsey's getting kind of gray and long in the tooth. He's, what, 78 or something like that now, so... He's, you know, he could go any moment now. He may not make the rapture. Boy, that those who oppose the rapture will have a heyday with that if that happens. So this is the flow of history, and we're still somewhere in the part of that last part with uh, that section with that last part with Rome. 
So now on this slide, what I've done is I've taken the image of Daniel 2 and turned him over on his back. And we're going to see how this fits into uh, Daniel 7. First of all, we have the lion, the winged lion of Babylon. This represents the gold head of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Then the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, this, is, this isn't guesswork. This isn't the theologian sitting around going, hmm, I wonder what that head of gold represents. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar and said, O king, you are the head of gold. So we know that for sure. In Daniel 8, uh, the interpreting angel says that the shaggy goat with the two horns, one's higher than the other, that that represents the Medo-Persian Empire. And we'll see that that, that is uh, the same as the chest of silver. And then we have the rise of Greece, a rapid rise of Greece. Out of nowhere came Alexander the Great and his rapid conquest of the Middle East all the way across uh, modern Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan and Pakistan all the way to all the way to India and then uh, the collapse and breakup of the of the Grecian Empire into four uh, components with his death and then the rise of Rome from 68 BC to 476 and then in the future represented by the iron and clay of the statue, will have Rome too. So the Medo-Persian is, represents the silver chest of the, uh, of the statue. Uh, Greece represents the brass abdomen uh, and mid-portion, and then the legs of iron represent Rome, the indescribable beast, and then uh, the revived Roman Empire represented by the iron and clay, a mix of previous elements and new uh, new elements. Now, what's interesting about this is the shift between this this statue that's made of these precious and semi-precious metals and these ravenous, violent animals that are hostile to mankind. They are man-eaters. They destroy human beings if they can. Now, this is Harry Ironside. Some of you may not know who Harry Ironside was. He was a contemporary of C.I. Schofield and Lewisbury Chaffers. He taught at Dallas Seminary in the 30s and 40s on occasions. He was a pastor, though, of Moody Memorial Church in uh, Chicago. He was a Plymouth Brethren by background. That was a denomination that uh, was founded by... Uh, others, but John Nelson Darby was one of the original leaders, so they've generally been dispensational in their orientation. And uh, Ironside wrote a number of commentaries. If you read his commentaries, you will probably think this guy doesn't understand literal interpretation very well. You would be right, because he goes off, the, he goes out of bounds a lot in developing all kinds of allegory, but but uh, one of his, he wrote a little pamphlet called The Assurance of Salvation, which I bought in the early 70s, and that is one of the best little tracks I've ever read on The Assurance of Salvation. Well, in his commentary on Daniel, he writes in the, in, about the second chapter, comparing the second chapter to the seventh chapter. He talks, makes the observation about the second chapter is the vision of a Gentile king, but the vision in Daniel 7 is given to 
uh, Daniel, a prophet, a man of God. And the image of man given to the Gentile king uh, depicts these, these uh, uh, empires by a stately and noble figure, he says, that filled him with such admiration that he set up a similar statue to be worshipped as a god. But in this opening chapter of the second division, Daniel, the man of God, has a vision of those same empires, and he sees them as four ravenous wild beasts of so brutal a character and so monstrous withal that no actual creatures could adequately set them forth. This is, a, this is an unflattering picture of mankind. It is, a, it is a picture of the human race as uh, voracious, as violent, as taking advantage of people and destroying people. It is uh, the last thing that we think of when we think of all of the great empires in history. What we see in the contrast between Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 is that in Daniel 2, Daniel interprets world history from man's viewpoint. Man looks at what man produces and thinks it's wonderful and great. But Daniel 7 is a picture, and it depicts human history from God's viewpoint that these kingdoms of man are not, not very good. They are hostile to God. They are antagonistic to God, and they are destructive of humanity. So when we get into this seventh chapter, we'll see that there's three basic divisions at the beginning. There's a setting described in the first two verses. Then the beasts are set forth in verses 3 through 7. And then there is a emphasis on the description of this boastful horn that comes up among the ten horns of the, of the fourth beast. Now, Daniel's not left to guess as to the meaning of these, of these uh, images. If you look in your Bible in Daniel chapter 7, direct your attention down to verse 15. In verse 15, Daniel has seen this vision. He's seen everything. He doesn't understand it, but it has weighed heavy on his soul. And he says in verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. He woke up in the middle of the night, and he probably had cold sweats and a sense of anxiety and depression because he just, and he didn't understand what any of this meant. He says, I came near to one of those who stood by. So he wakes up, there's an angel standing there. So he doesn't have long to worry about his state of mind. And he says, I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. See, angels here are used to teach the word of God to the prophets. The angels are explaining what these symbols refer to. It's not up to Daniel to just sort of go back and say, okay, I've got to go back and study Moses or Jeremiah or David and find out what these images talk about. Or maybe I'll consult uh, the soothsayers or go look at the books that the Magi have here in Babylon. Maybe they, they can interpret these dreams uh, for me. 
Now, God sends an interpreting angel to explain this. He doesn't leave things up in the air for us to just guess about. And so they begin in verse 17 to describe the, what this vision means and its significance. So the last part of the chapter uh, deals with the explanation and the interpretation of the first part. And it pretty much repeats the same information that's there, but it adds a few things. So I'll go, kind of go back and forth between the first half and the second half rather than going all the way through in one shot. So we come to the uh, first two verses, which are the setting of the, of the chapter, give us the background, the time in which the event occurs. And we're told that it occurs in the first year of Belshazzar. The first year of Belshazzar is about 553 B.C. It's the first year that Belshazzar is reigning with his, uh, with his uh, father, who is about to take an early retirement. So this is the beginning of his co-regency uh, with, with, his, with his father. First year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, De- Daniel, uh, saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And last week, as I began to teach on this, I pointed out that in the Bible, the sea is the symbol of unstable human society in the kingdom of man. It is the instability that results from man trying to rule uh, himself apart from God. And hi- human history is at its best chaotic and unstable. We've lived in a time of trem- in the United States of America, we have been so blessed with a period of uh, 200 years of stability. We've had wars. We've had a war between the states. We've had world wars the last century. But this has been a time of unprecedented peace, especially since World War II, even though we've had Vietnam and we've had uh, the wars, war against terrorism, wars in different places in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan the last uh, nine years or so. We are incredibly blessed. When we think about what people have experienced in their lives, you think about in the period of the Reformation how many people who believe just a little bit of what we believe who were burned at the stake for heresy. Uh, Bloody Mary wasn't called Bloody Mary uh, for uh, no good reason. She was called Bloody Mary because during her very brief reign in England in the 16th century, she saw over 300 uh, Protestants burned at the stake in uh, in England, just outside of London. And we don't go through anything like that. Hopefully we won't in our lifetime either, but we never know. So the, the seas represents the instability of the, gen, of the Gentile nations, and then the wind is a picture of the spiritual forces at work which um, blend with the human powers to create the flows of history. And so we see this combination of the demonic 
with the instability of man. In verse 3, we read, Four great beasts were coming up from the sea, uh, different from one another. And they're each depicted as man-eating animals, uh, each more as dangerous as the one before, carrying on some of the same uh, same characteristics. Uh, they are they show these kings and kingdoms to be oriented to the various world philosophies, the cosmic philosophies of the kingdom of man, and depict these kings and kingdoms as destroyers of humanity. They don't build humanity. So when you think about this, when you watch these politicians promising the things that they're promising, and they're coming out of a human viewpoint perspective, they are destroyers of humanity. When you think about those people who are saying, well, we're doing this for the poor, and we're doing this to improve the environment, and we're doing this in order to have a, a greater depend, uh, greater freedom from dependency upon foreign oil. Don't believe any of that. That's not why they're doing it. They're doing it to gain more, more power, and all these programs gain greater, force us to be more and more dependent upon government, and they take more and more freedom and more and more money from the pockets of the citizenry in order to build their their power base. And all of their arguments for humanism ultimately end up being anti-human. Just think about the war on poverty that started with uh, Lyndon Johnson back in the 60s and the billions of dollars that's been poured down that rat hole, and it hasn't done anything to improve the lot of the poor in America. But it's done a lot to provide a lot of jobs for a lot of politicians on both sides of the aisle. And it's made a lot of politicians feel good about themselves because they've been out there trying to solve the problems of the poor. But they haven't done it. But they've taken a lot of money from a lot of citizens so that they could control how that money was spent rather than letting individual initiative from people in a free market solve the problem. So humanism is anti-humanism, and it's always destructive of, of humanity. In fact, in the black community, if you can read a few writers that are quite uh, uh, objective and honest, and they point out that the black family was destroyed by the war on poverty and was destroyed by a lot of the forced civil rights legislation that came along out of the 60s because the whole black agenda, in fact, there's a pastor down in um, south of Lake Jackson. What county is that in? Lake Jackson's in Brazoria. Brazoria. Yeah, he's down in Brazoria. And he has written a book on, and he's got a website, and he's got a DVD showing how the NAACP was founded on pure Marxist socialist principles and how that has continued to just infect the entire uh, black political scene ever since. And that's why there is no reaction when you may talk to some of your friends that are uh, black and you try to explain that the policies of Mr. Obama are socialist and you don't get the kind of reaction you do when you talk to a white person. Is because they don't even realize it. 
But it's been in, it's embedded in their thinking from all these social programs. They've been brainwashed to think that way. And I'm going to have a link on, uh, we'll put a link to that guy's church and some of his stuff up on the website uh, before long. So Daniel's vision is of the beastly nature of human kingdoms. And we see a deadly combination when we take fallen humanity plus satanic and demonic influence and it results in animal behavior. Man becomes inhuman. And just just look at, at scenarios in kingdoms where the governments have been allowed to take full power. Look at Chavez down in Venezuela. You look at Ahmadinejad in, in Iran. You look at Stalin. You look at Hitler. Uh, you look at Saddam Hussein in Iraq. They, they, they destroy people just to further their own, uh, their own power base. And so verse 3 talks about these four beasts that come up out of the sea. And if you compare that to verse 17, where we have the interpretation, the interpreting angel there says that these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings. And that word can also mean kingdoms, where the king represents the kingdom. Four kings who will arise uh, from the earth. And here this is not a term that is used in contrast to uh, anything else in terms of like, like the word earth is used in Revelation 13 for the land. Um, you have to really evaluate some of the context there to get, get the nuance. The first lines, I mean, the first creature is mentioned in verse 4. This, the first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked. Now, it's really interesting to watch what Daniel says about each one of these beasts and how it works out in history. Till its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. There's something changes, something about, something occurs that changes the bestial nature of this kingdom from the normal human kingdom to being more manlike as God created human beings to be. So he's made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was given to it. And see, this was fulfilled when the, the plucking of the wings is the event that occurs to Nebuchadnezzar when God smacks down Nebuchadnezzar and turns him into an animal for seven years. What happens? The irony is, he come, after seven years of being a beast, he becomes a genuine human being. He trusts the Lord. He's no longer arrogant. He recognizes that he's under the authority of God and writes a great statement that's uh, recorded there at the end of Daniel chapter 3 related to the, or Daniel 4, related to the uh, sovereignty of God. I believe Nebuchadnezzar became a believer as a result of that and that we'll see Nebuchadnezzar uh, in heaven. But this is when a, a human mind uh, was given to, to him, and he becomes a more uh, genuinely, human, uh, genuinely human leader. So we see that in comparison with the statue, that the head of gold is now the uh, two-winged uh, Lion. The lion is now. Let me make another comment here about the lion and the, and the wings. The wings of an eagle. 
the eagle is the largest and most powerful bird of prey. It is a bird that is carnivorous and also a carrion eater. So we think of the eagle, we look at it and we're taught this is somewhat majestic, but this is a ravenous animal, a powerful animal that is a, a, a carrion eater. Uh, eagles are often used down through history by nations to depict it's on the, the standards for Russia, the standards for uh, Germany, many other nations, including the United States, have used an eagle as their symbol. Lions as well. Lions are also large powerful, and can be uh, man-eating. They are extremely, uh, extremely violent. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is that head of gold. He built his own little statue in Daniel chapter 3 to uh, worship him. We also see that lions were used of Babylon. I just want to run through about four more slides here, and then we'll, uh, we'll call it quits tonight. Uh, here is a slide. This is one of the bricks from the Ishtar Wall in Babylon. This is on display at the uh, uh, Pergamon Museum in Berlin. I was supposed to go there on uh, September the, whatever it was, the 16th or 15th last September and meet uh, Ulan from Kyrgyzstan. You all remember Ulan. I was going to meet him there in Berlin, and we were going to go to the museum together. Ike interfered. Not Ike Spiker. Hurricane Ike came in that morning, so I couldn't go out that day, and he went instead and took a bunch of good pictures for me. And so these are some of the, the pictures that they had on, uh, some of the things they had on display there, the stylized lions, dragons that they often had on their, in their brickwork. But this is, they took the Ishtar Gate brick by brick from Babylon and rebuilt it. Uh, about a century ago in the uh, Pergamon Museum there uh, in Berlin. This was common. There's also seen in, uh, these are from um, uh, Assyria, uh, from Nineveh. These were at the, the uh, palace of Ashurbanipal, and this is in the British Museum. And you see the head of the Assyrian leader on the on a body of a lion with eagle's uh, wings in some of these uh, some of these pictures. So that was a very common depiction. Uh, bears and lions were commonly uh, seen as predators in an agrarian society. Well, here's our map of Babylon. I'm going to stop here because I want to do, spend a little time on map work before we get much further. But we've gotten a little further into Babylon than we did last time. But uh, one of the interesting things we'll see next time is that one of the major problems in the Babylonian cap, in the Babylonian empire had to do with money they had a huge inflation problem and they had problems with the collapse of their currency and reading some of the history related to their financial problems read sort of like the new york times probably wasn't as was just as dishonest as well but i let my opinion show Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study your word, to begin to get into this chapter and see your control of history. Take comfort from the fact that even though we live in chaotic, uncertain times, that you're in control so we can just relax and enjoy the ride, knowing that uh, we're going to be fully taken care of and provided for by you, just as you provided for Daniel and Ezra and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and numerous others down through the ages. 
We pray that each one here will gain a greater sense of conviction, the truth of your word from this study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.